great research study that they look at people that either do things while they're eating. So they're either watching TV or they're working or they just are focusing on their food. And the people that do other things while they're eating on average weigh 18% more than those that just eat and focus on their food. Wow. 18%. Which is like, if you look at like a 150 pound person, it's about 27 extra pounds. Significant, very significant. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mary Party. Dr. Mary is a naturopathic medical doctor and a certified functional medicine doctor, and she specializes in integrative gastroenterology and hormone balancing. She's based in Los Angeles, uh, California. She's the founder of Modern Med, which is a telemedicine and virtual wellness company. And she is also, uh, she's also created a gut health course that dives into the most common gut related complaints and natural solutions to start healing. And as you may have guessed, we are talking all about the gut today. Now I've known uh, Mary for years and uh, it's just a pleasure to, uh, to speak with her. This conversation was recorded live inside my Hello Betty membership, what we affectionately refer to as HBHQ, Hello Betty headquarters. And so what we did here was we recorded the podcast live and then we stopped the recording and then we had our members ask her their direct burning questions about the gut. Now you are going to get so much value from this conversation. Uh, Mary is whip smart. You will see that almost instantly in terms of her responses, her depth of knowledge. And we talk about all things microbiome. So we start off by talking about what a gut health check scan might look like. So what do our poops look like? What is the color? What does the color mean? The length of the stool, the frequency of, uh, of having a bowel movement, uh, transit time. Um, we talk about some of the more common ailments, uh, that we are seeing in the population, including IBS, uh, and also SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And Mary does a really good job of painting the picture of each one in terms of how often the, the frequency with which we're seeing IBS in the population, some of the, uh, diagnostic criteria, um, and IBS is one of those 
um, diseases where it's more of a diagnosis of exclusion. So she walks us through how uh, she performs that. We talk about SIBO. We talk about the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. Of course, parasympathetic rest and digest. So the digest part is what we really focused in on. And we talked about trauma and mental health, mental resilience, and the connection to the gut. And maybe on first glance, that might seem to be unrelated, but we talked about the postbiotic signaling from our microbiome. So we talked about some of the gases that the microbiome typically produce, and these postbiotics, how they can signal and influence brain health. Uh, we talk about acetate, um, which can turn on um, insulin secretion causing weight gain. We talked about uh, methane. We talked about hydrogen sulfide. We talked about all the things related to um, mental health and trauma. And then we also talked about the interplay of the gut and the immune system. So we discussed the gut associated lymphoid tissue and its role in the immune system, um, how you know, over maybe the past 20 months or so, you know, we've all become a little bit more fluent in uh, immunological terms like antibodies and so forth. Um, so we talked about how our gut is really one of the first interactions that an invading pathogen um, might have uh, with our body and why it's important to be keeping the immune system in the gut intact and balanced. And then of course we talked about labs, all the labs. We have, there's a big discussion that we have around different types of labs, what we might uh, expect from them, One of some of her favorites, some of the problems that she has with uh, others, and overall a very robust discussion on gut health. And this is something that we haven't actually explored on the podcast uh, in depth. Of course, we've talked about it in, in pieces as it, as it relates to liver detoxification and the strobilome in, in terms of estrogen metabolism, but this is a deep, deep dive. And I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mary Party. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. So we are live taping in front of my HBHQ, my Bettys inside my membership. And I am so excited to welcome Dr. Mary Party to the show. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I've known you for several years. We were talking just about, just before we let all our Bettys in, uh, known you for several years when you were still in school, you'd already started your practice. Now you are uh, a full-fledged uh, naturopathic uh, physician uh, treating patients and um, 
a lot of your work has, uh, has been focused on gut health. We're going to talk about the microbiome today. We're going to talk about mental health and the interplay between, you know, our past experiences and our willingness to look at those things and how that, um, and how that comes together with gut health and lots of juicy places. I have a couple of footnotes. I want to make sure that we get to, but before we do, I would love to introduce you, uh, to my community. So, um, I often find, and this is, at least true for me, it's, it's true for uh, many, many uh, colleagues where we get into a certain specialty because of our own story in some way. And I would love to know how you arrived or where, what piqued your curiosity around the microbiome, around gut health. Was there something in your life or maybe someone dear to you um, that you, um, uh, that you weren't able to help, were able to help that, that really uh, drove your specialty? Yeah, absolutely. And it is so true. Even how I've navigated and meandered from my origin is all due to like my personal story. And I think that's so true for so many of us, especially in the alternative world um, where we're doing um, more integrative treatments. Um, And for me, it was exactly that. It was that I had gut conditions throughout my childhood, starting at a really, really young age. Um, Started with constipation and then had reflux, was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, and really just did not feel well as as a young child. So I had migraines as well. And because of that, I went through the entire medical system. I had a colonoscopy, endoscopy at a really young age. I did all of the tests, SIBO tests, you know, capsule tests where you swallow something, it tracks your whole GI system. Um, I went through the whole thing and I never was presented with solutions that were sustainable. So some of them would help for the short term and then symptoms would come back. Um, and so I stayed in the medical system for a really long time. And finally, I was at my wit's end and ended up seeking alternative treatment. So I tried acupuncture. I tried Reiki. I tried all of these things. And finally, I found a naturopathic doctor. And it was really her brain that I was obsessed with more than anything. I mean, the things she told me, because I had seen tens of doctors, probably more than that by this point. And the things that she told me, true education, like why am I feeling this way? What's actually happening in my body? I had never been told before. And so I was really shocked by that experience and really inspired. And that was the point where I was like, this is what I want to do. And, and, you know, there was other things that came into play, but I really wanted to become the doctor that I needed as a young girl. And so that's where I set out on the journey of all things gut health. And I'm obsessed with it. I live it and I breathe it. And I'm at the point in my career where I've decided, okay, I kind of get this stuff. And now I want to explore mental health. And so now I'm digging into that full force as well, but they're all connected. So I think it's a really good combination. I love that. And I think that's for so many physicians, this is a, this is a repeat, uh, re, there's a through line and there's a repeating pattern where you have, there's something that, um, you weren't satisfied with maybe in your own life, your experience with the allopathic model. I hear this all the time from naturopathic doctors. I hear this all the time from DOs and DCs where we're like, man, the, this can't be all that there is. It can't just be, sorry, there's nothing that we can do for you. You'll just have to suck it up. This is what you're going to have to live with this chronic pain. You're going to have to live with these gut issues. You're going to have to live with, uh, such, or it's, or it's normal that there's this gaslighting that also happens, right? It's like, this, it's all in your head. Yeah. And 
which is really um, unfortunate, but I think that in some ways that pressure creates physicians like yourself where you can have the wherewithal and the patience to dig deeper, which is, which is really what we're going to do today. So thank you for that. And let's just, um, and you said something actually, before we go there, you said something else that I actually think is really important as well. And I have, I find myself, uh, I was reflecting when you were saying this, I'm like, yeah, I feel it the same too. Sometimes we will focus on one thing in your case, it's gut health. And then there's an evolution. Like I am going to talk, we're going to talk poop. We're going to talk about microbiome and lab testing, and we're going to do all that today. But there's almost an evolution that happens with the practitioner over time where you're like, this can't be the only thing I have to take other people. And so the mental health piece, I think, is really um, important. And that's I've been also feeling that as well. I talk hormones all day long. I talk resistance training all day long. I talk nutrition uh, all day long to the point where, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like nutrition, green leafy vegetables, like lift weights like that. You know, it's like if I could summarize my career, that's sort of what I'm talking about. Um, but I also feel like there's this mental health piece that we're so reticent to talk about. And there's such, there's this huge stigma around it. And I want to make sure that we, that we spend a, a sufficient amount of time talking about that today. Um, but to set the stage, because we are starting off with gut health, which is something we haven't really talked about on the pod yet. Uh, in, in, I mean, we've talked about it in terms of the estrobilome and liver, meta like, you know, with estrogen metabolism and liver detoxification. But let's talk about um, what if we if we did no testing and, and I think I read a stat somewhere that like 98 percent of us check in the toilet, once we have a bowel movement, we all turn around and we kind of look at what's going on inside. And if you're in that 2%, you're a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> but if we are, if we are, you know, doing a overall bowel movement check, can you um, delineate for us what are, what is normal um, and maybe uh, what you, and we'll talk about some of where we can go wrong into abnormal, but what is normal in terms of the color of the stool, the length of the stool, the transit time, the frequency, like talk to me all about, talk to me all about that. Yeah. Hot topic. What should your poop look like? Um, so this is, I always talk about poop with my patients. I wanna know what it looks like and I ask all of these questions. You wanna basically start with frequency is, is the, one of the biggest things. We talk about motility a lot, which is the movement, how quickly things move through your GI system. You should be having about one to three bowel movements per day. And that's going to be based on a lot of things, how much food you're eating, but we want to be having a bowel movement every day up to three is normal. And then there's going to be some variation. And it doesn't mean that you have to have the same number of bowel movements every day to be regular, right? Um, so things will change, but you want to be going consistently and you want to feel like you fully voided. And so if you go to the bathroom every day, but you're only going a very small amount and you feel like you're backed up, then that's still not normal for you. So you want to feel like you've fully voided after you go to the bathroom, which means that you feel empty afterwards. In terms of length, this also is going to vary based on how much fiber you're consuming in your diet and just how much food you're consuming in the diet. But I say as a general rule of thumb, you want your stool 
however many times you go through the day to equate to about the length of your wrist to your elbow. And so this is length, it's not necessarily diameter, but that's about how much stool we're looking for. And there's a lot of women which they'll tell me, oh, I'm not going nearly that much, but I feel like I've fully voided. The next thing I'm gonna ask them is, how many calories are you eating per day? How much food, how much volume are you eating per day? Because if you're only eating 700, 1200 calories, you're not going to be going to the bathroom that much. It's just in versus out, right? So we have to think about that as a variable too. The other thing is going to be color. And so color, people think it just should be one color brown. And it's actually not the case. It can change and be normal if it changes too. So a couple examples of that. If you have babies, you probably know this, but if you eat a ton of carrots or sweet potatoes, things that contain beta carotene, you may notice that orange tinge to your poop or in babies, it'll just be like orange, right? Um, so that's normal. Our poop can turn a little green if we have tons of greens or tons of green juice too. That's normal as well. Beets can make your poop like purpley, almost look like there's blood there. You want to make sure if you see that color, red in general, you want to make sure that you had beets. If you did not have beets, then red is never, never normal. And that's always something to talk to your doctor about. So blood in the stool, never normal, always oh, should see a physician about that one. The other color, yeah, go for it. I was gonna, uh, no, continue, continue, you're, you're on a roll. The other color that's um, not normal is gonna be black and black can mean that there's blood upper in the GI tract, so higher up, either stomach, small intestines, never normal, wanna see your doctor about that one. The one caveat I'll put there is if you've taken activated charcoal, which some of the biohackers out there may have taken for detoxification, or you can track your transit time with it too, but activated charcoal will make the stool black and that's normal if you took it. Um, yellow, not typically normal. We really wanna look at the gallbladder there and see if there's extra fat in the stool, especially if there's a greasy film on the stool, also not normal. What about white? I know that that's, uh, we were taught in school, this is a big red flag for issues with the pancreas. Um, what, what happens if we see, I mean, it should be brown, I, well, you, you're the expert. You tell me, should it be brown? Isn't that the Billy Rubin that's, that's yeah. coloring the, yeah. Exactly. So the brown color in the stool is there because there's Billy Rubin. So your red blood cells die every 90 days. They break down. Billy Rubin from that breakdown process is excreted in the gallbladder, then into the intestines. And that's what makes your stool that brown color. So if there's something going on in the liver, gallbladder, along that transit pathway down, then you won't have that coloring. And you can usually notice it's more of like a clay color, but a very light color or white um, where there's that absence of bilirubin. That's also not normal. You want to see your doctor about that one too. Yeah. And I would also say um, a lot of, um, you know, once I've developed, you know, developed a certain rapport with, um, <laughs> with my patients, a lot of women will say, oh, I just have these like little, uh, what I would, they would call them like little rabbit poos, like these little hard dehydrated little like hamster droppings. Right. And this is also not normal. So, um, uh, so I, I like the, I like the visual of what you did, like the wrist, did you say wrist to the elbow is about the amount that you should be, and it should be, I remember having a uh, Dr. Godfrey, Sarah Godfrey on the 
on the show and she said, it should feel like when you have a bowel movement, it should feel like it's an Olympic dive, you know, it's like straight and it like goes into the water, minimal splash, you know, (laughs) and that that's also, that's related to the hydration, of course, of the bowel movement, but also the length, right? So if you're having these little, uh, like small animal, like these little vol, these little rabbit droppings, right. They're going to be, there's going to be, they're going to be hardened. There's not going to be a lot of softness to them. And of course there's going to be a big splash. Um, the yeah, well. people, it's, it's interesting because the consistency of your stool, first of all, if you're listening and you want to know more about this, you can Google Bristol stool chart. And that's like, holy grail, what your poop should look like and what's going wrong if it doesn't look like that. But when you have those hard rabbit pellets, it's all, it's talking about the transit time. So that's a reflection of how quickly or slowly things are moving through. And so if things move very fast through the GI system, especially the colon, there's not enough time for water to be absorbed over that colon wall. And so you're left with a lot of water in the stool or very loose stools, diarrhea. The opposite is true. And I would say more common, especially in women where if the transit time is too low, so the transit time is going to be too long, right? Then there's going to be too much time and too much water is going to be absorbed over that colonic wall, which will leave you with really dehydrated, hard rabbit pellets. And so it gives you a good sense of, okay, am am I moving too slow? My intestines moving too slow? Are they moving too fast? And then you have to ask the question of why, right? But you can tell a lot from just the consistency, hardness, softness of the stool. And it'll also change too um, as well if you are fasting, right? So obviously, I mean, you mentioned something very briefly. I just want to circle back to this before we kind of move on. But I think that if you're not taking in the same quantity of food, then, you know, the frequency of the bowel is going to change. And you may also see a change in the consistency of the BM as well, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And that can be for a variety of reasons. And so if you fast too, too long, right, we're talking about more of a starvation mode, like that's the extreme of fasting, then things slow down because you go into starvation mode, thyroid slows down, everything can slow down. Um, Intermittent fasting or shorter fast, you still can have less bowel movements, you're eating less food. Um, But you should still feel if you're in a good place for your body, you should still feel when you went to the bathroom, you fully voided. It's not that you went a smaller amount and you're like, oh, but there's still a lot in there. That's more of a constipation. Right. Right. And of course, that'll also, I mean, under hormonal control, it'll also change as well. So a lot of, uh, I remember, um, I'm thinking of two patients, I won't say their names, but I remember like when they got their period, they're like, oh my God, this is the best, like the best part of getting my period is the bowel movements that I have, because you have this, of course, really very uh, trans, a very, I should say, quick drop in progesterone, which of course slows down motility, as you were mentioning. Um, So when you have that drop, um, you know, things can uh, things can evacuate, you know, uh, relatively fully, I would say. And you, I, I also would see this with, I mean, I actually saw this right before I gave birth. I was like, oh, all right, baby's coming soon because that was, that was, you know, drop some kitties, drop some serious kitties off at the pool there. So labor, labor's <laughs> around the corner. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Women will, uh, it's pretty universal. Like right before your period, more prone to constipation, progesterone's at its highest. Um, also, if you're prone to reflux, that can be much bigger right before your period too, because progesterone can be elevated, slowing down the entire GI tract. And then once progesterone dives down at the start of your period, 
floodgates open, easy to go to the bathroom. What's interesting as well is women with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, may notice a relief and benefit from their period to around ovulation because estrogen is more dominant in that phase. And estrogen talks with serotonin and serotonin relieves pain. And so if you have abdominal pain, you know, just from IBS, then you may feel better in that first follicular phase of your cycle. Um, Really, really common. What do you think about mechanical aids like the Squatty Potty? Love it. I'm a huge fan of the Squatty Potty. Squatty Potty just is mimicking what your biomechanics would look like if you were squatting to go to the bathroom, which is how we were designed to go to the bathroom. We weren't, honestly, we weren't designed to sit in chairs period, right? So it's a very strange posture for humans. We were much more um, designed for squatting, kneeling, being on the ground, um, and changing positions more often versus sitting in a chair for eight hours out of the day. Um, So I'm a huge fan of it. I suggest pretty much everybody get one just to prevent hemorrhoids and for easier bowel movements. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny because, um, uh, you know, as a, as a chiropractor, I w- we were taught, you know, this, this full squat is optimal for hips. I mean, that's how we give birth. That's how we should be giving birth anyway, optimal positioning for, uh, you know, opening up the hips, et cetera. And when you look, you know, when I look at my kids and now they're in, they're a little bit older, so they're starting to sit a little bit more, but they would just hang out in this at like this squat position and like examine the grass and they would play and they would make little sand all in this squat position. And I would get down with them and I'm trying really hard for my heels not to pop up. And I'm like, what happened? You know what? I mean, and it's, it's to your point, it's this excessive sitting it's, you know, where we lose flexibility in the Achilles tendon, in the ability of the flexion of the hip. And then with the squatty potty, of course, mechanically, what we're seeing is that the sacrum literally like kind of gets out of the way, um, so that you can actually have that full void. And if your sacrum is, um, what we would call extended, um, so it's kind of coming back and down the coccyx or the tip can kind of come into, uh, or at least interfere with, um, uh, bowel movements. And we actually see this in pregnancy as well, which is why laying on your back, laboring on your back, it's because the sacrum is now sort of getting shoved into, uh, into the body from your body weight. So it's really lovely if you can actually get on all fours and use, and I'm talking about laboring in, in, in particular, or in a bath or in a squat position, because you're literally taking the sacrum out of the, or at least the coccyx, like the, the, the tailbone out of the picture. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about this. I was like, oh my God, you're the perfect person to answer this question. But yeah, the sacrum out of the way, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let you mentioned IBS. And what I wanted to do um, is I wanted to maybe classify some of the different um issues that we can see with gut health. IBS, obviously very, very common. Um, I wanted to also talk about SIBO and SIFO, but maybe we can start with IBS and what are some of the, um, the more salient clinical signs and symptoms, um, that would maybe just raise a little, you know, yellow flag, like maybe this is irritable bowel. Um, and how would you distinguish that? What would be some of the clinical, like some of the labs or some of the distinguishing features that you'd be looking for? 
Yeah, absolutely. So IBS is one of the most common GI conditions that primary care physicians will see that in reflux are extremely common. Um, you're looking at about one in five people have IBS, so about 20% of the population. It's, it's a really high number. And in terms of what it looks like, it can look like a lot of things. And so when people come to see me and I'm evaluating them for the first time, really with IBS is you're ruling out all the other organic pathologies, which means things that will have inflammation. They'll look different if you did a scope or colonoscopy, right? Um, and so irritable bowel syndrome is a conglomeration of symptoms that doesn't show any positive lab values really. And so it's more an exclusion, but there's the Rome 5 criteria that you're looking at. And so you're looking at alternating bowel movements with diarrhea and constipation. You can have just constipation. You can just have just diarrhea. You can have a lot of discomfort, gas, bloating. Um, those are very, very common symptoms that you'll see. And so with that, you want to make sure the person doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease or something else that if you looked at a colonoscopy, you could see, okay, there's ulcers there. That's not irritable bowel syndrome. So if somebody meets the criteria that they don't have anything else and they have all of these symptoms and it's been a long time, so it has to be a chronic condition. It's not just two weeks of this, right? But something that's been ongoing, then we're going to diagnose them with irritable bowel syndrome. And so the labs that you want to run in this case, though, is you want to check that this is not thyroid. So you want to run a full thyroid panel. And we talk about this all the time in functional medicine. That's not just a TSH. And so I just got labs back from a girl with constipation and her TSH is very high, but we're also going to look at antibodies, right? To make sure she doesn't have Hashimoto's. Um, you can look at Graves too, which can cause diarrhea, the opposite of um, hypo, hyperthyroidism. You want to look at vitamin D, B12, all of these markers for nutrients because you want to see, are they not absorbing things? You should be able to absorb things in IBS. In Crohn's or colitis, lack of absorption is very, very common. And so the other thing you're going to look at pancreatic markers to see, are you digesting fats? That's amylase, lipase. You're going to look at inflammatory markers like sed rate, CRP are really common to run. Um, you're going to run things like uh, Giardia, a stool test, like do they have a parasite that can cause diarrhea? Right. Um, celiac. Celiac can happen at any age. You don't have to be born with celiac disease. That's a allergy to gluten. And so you want to make sure you rule that as well. Those are going to be more of your conventional labs. And then you also want to make sure that you're running a SIBO breath test. And this is no exceptions. If you have alternating diarrhea, constipation, bloating, or any of those single symptoms, so just diarrhea, just constipation, just bloating, still going to run a SIBO breath test, or it's called a lactulose breath test. And that's going to look for an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine, which is what it stands for. Um, the other test that I'll run is an IBS smart test, which is looking at antivinculin and um, CDTB. I believe is the other one. I probably get those all mixed up, but those letters in some order, it's an antibody. So those are two antibodies that are looking at post-infectious IBS. Um, so I won't run that all the time, but some of the times I'll run that one. And it's really good to run that one if your symptoms started 
right after you got food poisoning. So it's a question I ask everybody. Do you remember getting food poisoning around the time that your symptoms started? If the answer is yes, then I'm going to look at those antibodies to see if you actually have more of an autoimmune response going on that's changing the communication between the gut and the brain. And I'll treat it differently. So that's the other reason that I test those ones too. Um, organic acids is another test that we put in the maybe category. Don't run it with all people, but if I'm looking for fungal overgrowth, it's one of our only tests for that. It's not the best test for it. It's more like if I really need something or if the patient really needs an explanation, then I might run that one. And then um, we can talk about it, but stool tests, I do run the conventional stool test, meaning we're going to look at a calprotectin level, which is an inflammatory marker. We'll look at lactoferrin. We're going to look at ova, parasites, cultures, um, giardia, cyclospora, if they're in California specifically. So we'll look at specific things, but I'm actually not a huge fan of the comprehensive stool analysis that we do in functional medicine. So we can chat about that. Yeah, um, I'd love to know why. Tell me why. Yeah, so... With those, I find that, well, the first, my first thing with that is that they're really cherry picking in my mind. And so what that means is that there's about a thousand species in the gut microbiome, thousand species of bacteria. Those tests don't look at a thousand. They're looking at five, 10, 20, maybe. And so it's like, why these 20? And the answer is, we don't know. We just are going to look at these 20. And so there's some research on them, but the thing with that is if you have research on one specific species, that's only in the person that you're looking at that one in. So I'll give you an example of this, but basically if you have a species that's elevated in inflammatory bowel disease, and we're saying there's an association there. Association does not mean causation. That species could be elevated because that person has a very restrictive diet which are the majority of people with inflammatory bowel disease. They don't eat a lot of different foods. And so until we know more, we have so much to uncover about the microbiome. Until we know more, I don't think that they help that much with the treatment with a few exceptions. But um, in general, I like to save people's money for treatment options and like, let's run these through Quest and just get OVA, Parasite, Culture, Giardia, like the ones that we wanna make sure are definitely not there. You mentioned SIBO, and I'd like to uh, just double click on that uh, for a moment and we can take CIFO into the conversation as well. This is something that I didn't really come across 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be something that is, um, I mean, I don't have percentages on it, but I would say the frequency of patients that sort of fit the criteria for SIBO, there seems to be more and more and more of them. So yeah. Let's talk a little bit about SIBO, clinical picture, what it looks like. And then um, maybe we can touch on a little bit of, uh, um, I want to talk a little bit about an elimination diet because I have a, a bit of a love-hate relationship with elimination diets. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, I think they're useful, but I think that it can cause, um, and maybe this will segue us into sort of mental health, but I think it can, it can when you, when you eliminate foods from the diet, I think that it's very difficult to 
tease apart for the patient that it's not these foods that are harming you. Um, it's that maybe you have an over colonization of the gut. We need to just reduce the overall volume right now. I mean, and the same, the same is actually true on the other end when we have, when we get to leaky gut, when we get to hyperpermeability. Um, but it I, often when I've put someone on an elimination diet, I have to literally almost beg them to start eating those foods again. So let's, let's chat a little, let's talk about SIBO first. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of meander our way over to, over to, um, hyperpermeability, but what is SIBO? Um, what are some of the, uh, again, clinically salient signs and symptoms that a patient might come in with, and then what can we do to help correct the problem? Yeah, absolutely. And so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it pretty much tells you in the name, but it's an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines. And the important point here is that it's an overgrowth of normal bacteria. So it's not pathogenic bacteria. You do not have an infection if this is the case, right? So just like Things can happen on the skin, but basically there's an overgrowth of bacteria that shouldn't be happening there. And those bacteria that overgrow can produce gases. And the gases that they're going to produce are either hydrogen, which typically speeds up motility, which can lead to um, diarrhea, methane from archaea bacteria, which are, is going to slow down motility and can lead to constipation. And now we're also um, measuring a third gas called hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide typically speeds things up, more diarrhea predominant. And then the other thing that's kind of like the keynote with hydrogen sulfide is you can have sulfur smelling gas, so like that rotten egg smell with sulfur. These gases are coming from the bacteria. And so our human cells do not produce hydrogen or methane. And so we're looking for the bacteria as the real source for this overgrowth um, taking place. And you can see that if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, you have more gases being produced. And then those gases are causing the symptoms. And then the symptoms are actually worsening the overgrowth. And so it becomes a feed forward cycle. For instance, somebody with, let's say, methane predominant SIBO, they're going to slow their gut down. That's going to allow for more overgrowth, more methane, slower. And so you do really have to intervene there and reduce the bacterial counts. And so this is a time where I will use antibiotics sometimes in these folks because you want to lower bacterial count. That's our goal. And so there's some antibiotics that are better than others. Um, but with SIBO, again, those symptoms that you're looking for are constipation, Diarrhea, alternating constipation, diarrhea, bloating. Bloating is the big one with SIBO. So gas, bloating. Some people, uh, I see it in men more often, that aren't as in touch with their bodies. They may say, oh, I'm not bloated. I'm like, well, you do have discomfort. And they say, yes. And then I ask, does it feel like your stomach's kind of like sticking out a little bit? They're like, yes. And so that is what we call bloating. Bloating is not always, um, sometimes women will say bloating when they have like water retention. So it also can be distension or just like kind of a pushing out of the stomach from those gases. Gas pains can be really painful. And so I had a gentleman come in two weeks ago where I was working him up for diverticulitis, which is an infection. It's an acute condition. It's very severe, um, can be dangerous if you don't catch it. And it ended up just being SIBO. Doesn't mean that he was being a baby. It actually means that gas pains can be very uncomfortable at times. 
So any discomfort is really, really common with SIBO too. And then you'll see people with reflux as well. So if you have motility issues, things aren't moving smoothly through the GI system. And that's what reflux is. Reflux is when things start to move back up instead of down the stomach into the intestines. So reflux can be really common as well. Um, I think that uh, I love the word reflux and reflex because what you're essentially saying is there's a reflection, right? So you are in this flexed position and you're doing it again, which is often what happens uh, in a patient with reflux. And with SIBO, often uh, clinically, the um, and you tell me if I'm uh, if this is what in line with what you've seen is often the it's almost relieved overnight. So over the, let's say the eight hour fast that they've been sleeping, right? So it, it, it gets better. So they're like, okay, it's okay in the morning. But then as they, uh, you know, take in food, it gets worse and worse and worse. And they get this sort of, um, in more severe cases, I would say, almost like a, a baby bump, you know, it's like, I feel like I have this like six month baby bump at the, at the end of the day. And then the cycle repeats itself. Then they fast for eight hours and then there's a, an improvement in symptoms. Is that in line with what you see as well? hundred percent, hundred percent. And so that's a, that's a really important distinction actually, is I always ask people, are your symptoms better when you wake up in the morning? Um, usually the answer is yes, it should be yes. That one, if it's not, I'm actually looking at other things as well. Um, and so food makes it worse and it's usually like, even if I eat a salad, it's worse. Or even when I eat healthy foods, it's worse. Um, and you'll notice people that eat like a bunch of protein bars or things that they consider healthy, like high fiber foods, make it a lot worse. And so that's a big sign for me that, okay, is this SIBO because are, they, are the bugs feeding off of these fibers that are highly fermentable? And then that's where you're getting the excess gas production. And it's going to be about 76% of people that are diagnosed with IBS have SIBO. So we look at this in terms of a huge overlap of people with IBS have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, so pretty much anybody that's been diagnosed with IBS, I'm also testing. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. I, um, I want to talk a little bit about elimination diets because it is one of the ways that I have found to be effective for, so you just mentioned ferment, so, you know, fermentable foods, I will keep them away from foods that are, um, more easily fermented, but in, as I mentioned before, it's really important that we have a conversation before this elimination diet is put into place, that it's not these foods that are the problem. It's that there is a the volume of bacteria and we are trying the the overall goal is that we're trying to reduce the amount of volume of bacteria that you have in the gut as you said it's not an infection we're not trying to rid the body of we're just trying to reduce the amount of the good guys that you have um 
Talk to me a little bit about your experience with elimination diet. Do you see any of the psycho? I, I want to call it maybe psychological hangups because the, the point of elimination diet is to eliminate the food, but then to reintroduce it. Um, and it's the reintroduction part that I have often run into where we need to talk a little bit about uh, maybe more orthorexic type tendencies uh, it, where they're, they're just finally feeling better and they're like everything to the letter and they're so scared to put these foods back into their, into their diet. Yeah, no, I've seen the same thing. And I, I screen people before I suggest a restrictive diet for any past history of disordered eating. And I specifically say disordered eating. I don't say an eating disorder um, because you can have disordered eating patterns or a negative relationship with food or have had something similar to an eating disorder that was never diagnosed. And so I'm always talking to people like, what's your relationship with food? Because that in my mind is much more detrimental to go down the pathway of developing an eating disorder or disordered eating from trying to heal your gut. It's doesn't make sense to me. And there's other ways that we can do it. So I think it's really, really important that healthcare practitioners have a lengthy discussion about somebody's relationship with food. Interesting things always come up from that conversation too. So we always learn something about their, their history and just how they cope with food. And so if that is the case um, that somebody has a tough relationship with food as it is, or is constantly thinking about food or is hung up on it or has more of an orthorexic tendency where they're so scared to eat foods because they may not be healthy for them or they may cause symptoms, then I'm usually actually not doing an elimination diet. We're going to find another alternative. And if that's not the case and they're like, no, I just want to feel better. I have a great, I love food, like food fuels me. And then we talk about just exactly what you said, Stephanie, and that okay, this is going to be for 30 days. I typically do a 30 day one gold standard for gluten is going to be closer to 90 days. So depending on the person, I might extend it to 90 days. I just want to do it as short of a duration as possible. So they don't get used to it as their forever diet. This should not be your forever diet. People have said they went on an elimination diet and then their practitioner never had them reintroduce food. That's not an elimination diet. That's just a restrictive diet. And so you have to have a reintroduction phase that has to be built in. That has to be the end goal is to put in as many foods as possible. I have people reintroduce gluten. Like I am, I'm not biased against any of them. You know, I'll have a discussion if we're trying to lose weight, you know, do we want dairy and a ton of carbs in? So that'll be part of it. But I really think we should be eating pretty much as many good foods as we can. And what we consider good um, is really biased a lot of the times in natural medicine. And so we'll do and it's always changing. It's always changing. Always. It's a moving target all the time, right? So how can we tell anybody that we actually know it? It's like, there's a few things that we know, and then we have research. So if you have specific conditions, then we may say, okay, we should take out these other things or, but really just going based on what your body feels. And so if after the 30 days, your joint pain goes away, and when you put gluten back in, it comes right back, then that's a good signal for you, right? Um, if you put gluten back in and nothing changes, then I don't have a huge drive to tell you, yeah, keep it out forever. And again, there's a couple of conditions where I may say, okay, there's some research here with the immune system. Um, but yeah, so we're taking things out for 30 days. I add things that a typical elimination diet doesn't take out for gut specific conditions. So we can talk about those, but in general, we'll take out gluten, dairy, um, eggs, corn, 
I'm going to take out legumes because they can cause bloating in everybody. Um, we'll, we'll also take out nut and nut butters, which is really important for gut conditions. Um, I've seen people take out almond butter, which is a healthy food, right? And their bloating goes away. And it's because they were eating like four tablespoons of nut butter at a time, which we were never designed to eat that many nuts. If you think about our ancestors, they had to find a nut, crack it, and then eat it. And that's one nut. In a tablespoon of nut butter, I don't even know how many nuts there are. Oh, I've tried making nut butter at home. You need an extraordinary oh, amount of nuts to make nut butter. So yeah, one tablespoon is like, it's almost, a, it's like a concentrated amount. I mean, I, I couldn't even... I mean, it has to be like at least 15, 20 nuts for like one tablespoon. It has to be somewhere in that, in that ballpark. And I might, might even be under, uh, underdogging it a little bit as well. Yeah. So if you're having, you know, two, three tablespoons in your smoothie and then you have, you know, just, you just do like the spoon thing into the mouth as a snack when you're working at home, which we all do sometimes, but that adds up a lot. And so nuts can be really bloating, can cause constipation as well. So we'll take those out. And those are one of the things that I'm like stressing to people. Nuts aren't bad for you. We just probably want them in moderation and we're going to reintroduce them after the 30 days. Um, other thing is that we take out our bars. So we take out all bars. If it's a bar, you're not eating it for 30 days. It doesn't mean there aren't good bars around, but in general, they'll have things like chicory in them. They'll have a ton of those prebiotic fibers that if you have SIBO, they're going to flare you up. Um, or if you just don't have SIBO, but it's a ton of fiber and you're not used to eating that much fiber and protein in, in a very small volume, then it can cause GI issues as well. Um, we'll take out coffee. I take that out two part. The first part is that it can speed up motility. So it can cause diarrhea. So we'll take out coffee for that reason. It can also in large amounts be irritating to the gut and lead to reflux or worsen gastritis. Um, but the other reason I take it out is that I noticed that people that have gut conditions, especially IBS, are much more sensitive to caffeine and stimulation in general. And so there's a term called highly sensitive people. I don't know if you've heard of this one. I'm like mm -hmm. fascinated by it. I'm definitely one of them too. So that's why I'm biased and fascinated. But these are people that are more sensitive to stimuli, sounds, smells, light, um, but they're also likely more sensitive in their body. And so they may have something that makes it so their receptors in their gut are more sensitive to pain. And so this is really well known that people have this hypersensitivity of the gut with IBS a lot of the times where there's the same amount of gas in two people's guts and person A feels it a lot more and person B does it. So we're looking at like a hypersensitivity in that case. And, um, and so these types of people, these highly sensitive people don't do that well with caffeine. It's too stimulating for them. So it's more as a nervous system treatment that I take it out just to like calm things down. Like, let's see where your baseline is. And again, it's not that coffee's bad. Coffee has a ton of amazing research for anti-diabetes, anti-aging, like love coffee. But some people just don't do well with it. So we're taking it out for that reason. Um, sometimes we'll take out nightshades. That's going to be dependent on the person just in case they're inflaming the gut at all. And I probably forgot some, but I'm trying to remember them all. That's a great list. I think um, in, in many ways, um, 
a highly sensitive person is some is almost like a canary in the coal mine. Like they're the person who is going to raise the flag first and say this is. And then of course, as you've been saying, everything exists on a spectrum. So it just might be that person's particular constitution. Um, and we, I want to talk about the nervous system and trauma. I think this is a perfect way to bridge yeah. that, um, that conversation because someone who is potentially a highly sensitive person, you might be able to, um, make the argument that, and to be highly sensitive, we should also maybe divine. It's not that you are able to oscillate easily between your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic system. It is that you are displaying more sympathetic uh, tone, that you are more sympathetic dominant, that you are maybe stuck and sympathetic. Uh, you've heard me talk about this on the pod a lot, but fight or flight, freeze, right? And parasympathetic rest, digest, stay and play. That's the parasympathetic. That's when we're sleeping, when we're making love, when we're, when we're eating. Um, and I would, I would argue that someone who is more stuck in that. And maybe we, we, we might, we can get into the conversation around HRV here as well. But I think that that person who is more sympathetic dominant, who displays more sympathetic tone, that inability to put, bring her foot off of the gas and put it on the brake potentially has a history of trauma. Um, and we can maybe talk a little bit about how that might uh, work into her, uh, in her personality and her coping mechanisms, but it's often the case. And I've spoken to people on psych about psychedelics and, um, it's often the case. And I've heard many people say this, that we are spiritually sick first, right? You know, we, we endure some, um, some insult to our nervous system. Maybe it's a short amount of time or it's over a long Delta. It's over a long period of time. And this integrates in a way into our nervous system that shapes our responses. It shapes our, it's, it, 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 you know, we were talking before we started recording about how we both were sort of, you know, we sort of put our head down, you know, I put my head down for four years when I was in chiropractic school and then I popped up and people were like, Hey, did you see this show? I'm like, what are you talking about? I was just in the most stressful you know, four out, four year marathon, <laughs> you know, no, of course I didn't see that show that you're talking about. So talk to us a little bit about the interplay between this highly sensitive person, trauma, mental health, and a sympathetic tone and how that impacts the gut. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we want to start with trauma first, because I think trauma is underdiagnosed currently. Um, trauma is anything that when our ability to respond to a perceived threat is overwhelmed. And so that definition, that's very broad. And so, you know, I had this epiphany after a plant medicine ceremony that I did. It's like med school was a trauma for me. Like that was a time where I became hypervigilant, um, meaning that I started scanning my environment for what is going what could be going wrong or are there things that I'm right? I'm going to drop the ball on, right? Like, are there assignments that I haven't done um, because of the sheer overwhelm that you experience, like drinking from a fire hose. And so, you know, there's, there's things and people often think trauma is when something really gory graphic happens. It's only a death. It's only something, you know, that you see in a thriller movie or something. And it really is a pretty broad definition there. 
Um, and we know that early childhood trauma, which could be abuse, neglect, it could be divorce. Um, it could be raised by somebody who was an alcoholic um, or raised by somebody who had depression themselves. All of these are considered early um, childhood traumas. And people with childhood trauma are more likely to develop both IBS and inflammatory bowel disease. That's in the research. And so it's very well known. And so, you know, when people come to me now over the last year, I've started to do a full mental health workup too. So I'm starting with childhood, like IBS for 10 years. Okay. Let's bring it back to like, what did it look like in your house when you were growing up? Did you feel safe? Um, what was your relationship with mom, with dad? And I always tell people, we're not blaming anybody here. This is not about the, the blame somebody game. Like that's actually the opposite. We don't want to create a victim mentality, but you have to also understand your story. People are often coming to me because they don't know why it's happening to them. And so understanding your story is actually the process of healing in and of itself. You have to be clear about how you came to be as a human. And that's always the case. It's not just with a diagnosis. It's, it's how we develop meaning throughout life, right? Is to really be the active participant in our own story. And so um, what I've realized is that people with a lot of stress are more likely to have GI issues. And there's a lot of very tangible reasons for this. Um, but what, but what basically what we see is that an acute stress is what we were developed to handle. Right. And so tiger comes in, that should be, we're talking about seconds to minutes of a response. If it's more than that, you're dead. So you're looking at like a very acute period of time that our nervous system was evolved to deal with stress. And so outside of that time, things get a little wonky. And so when you see, if you see a tiger, what's going to happen? Your heart rate's going to increase. Your blood pressure is going to increase. You're going to divert blood flow away from the gut to the muscles so that you can run away. Um, breathing will become rapid and shallow faster. And then the other thing is you're going to shut down reproduction, right? Because you don't need to digest your food or have a baby if there's a tiger there. And so our body will start to reprioritize survival. That's what happens under acute stress. The issue is we're not under acute stress anymore. We're under chronic stress. So stress is not happening for seconds or minutes. It's happening for days, months, years. Med school was four years of chronic stress. And, and that's not unique to me, right? It's like, you're in a stressful job. Like we're all inundated with chronic stress. And now what happens is our body doesn't really figure out how to do it differently than a tiger is just always there. And so what we see is that cortisol just keeps getting pumped out or sometimes it doesn't get pumped out at all. So we'll actually see both high and low cortisol with chronic stress. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, you know, you can be chronically tense because that tension was supposed to get you on the balls of your feet to run. But now we're not running. We're just stuck in this static mode. Um, I'll ask my patients, can you just do a scan right now? Like, how do you feel in your stomach? And they're like, tense. Their abs are actually hard. They're holding tension right in their gut. Um, and then a state of hypervigilance. And that's what I was talking about that I experienced. But if you're under chronic stress, it's just like it's a trauma in terms of you are scanning for what could go wrong next. 
And that means you're not in the present moment. Um, and so hypervigilance is really, really common in that state. And then the big thing is, is going to be that parasympathetic is not prioritized. And that means that your gut is going to shut off lower stomach acid production, digestive enzymes, changes in motility. And so it's really a kink in communication that happens between the gut and the brain with chronic stress. Cortisol actually slows down the stomach. And so if you have nausea or vomiting, like that could be cortisol just slowing down the stomach. And then there's that kink in communication, which means it's not talking fluidly anymore. So maybe it speeds up and then it slows down, speeds up, slows down, or maybe it's always slow. Um, or maybe it's always slow. And then like three times a year, you have diarrhea for four days. Like that's IBS right there. And so this is where we draw everything back to, damn, stress causes a lot of these issues. And we may want to blame it on, you know, this is where I think functional medicine actually does a huge disservice to the mental health part of it, where if we're going to blame it on toxicity and, and heavy metals and all of this stuff, we also have to realize like a lot of this is, is from mental health and just how we're living our lives. I think that is so well said. And I would add to that, that there's such a stigma around mental health. I mean, we've seen this over the last, call it 20 months, 21 months, we have sacrificed in order not to be infected with a certain pathogen. Um, we have, we have sacrificed some of our other canaries in other, in other uh, ways, people who are more sensitive, they're not, you know, able to get to their meetings. They're not able to see their psychiatrist or their psychologist. We've seen suicidality uh, with teenagers um, and adults, I mean, skyrocket. And I think that this is something that um, you're right. I think that a lot, you know, in both sort of more the traditional allopathic realm and more, and in the alternative health realm, we tend to be like, you know, what's going to fix this berberine. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, you know, what's going to be this one supplement in the same way. You know, sometimes we all rally. It's like these medical doctors and all they want to do is write you a script. And yes, many of them just want to write you a script so they can write their little code and get their little whatever. But there are also, unfortunately, you also see, you know, it's like, you know what you also need? You need the supplement. And it's like, yes, you need the supplement. Maybe, maybe you need the supplement, but can we, can we, can we pull it back? Let's come down to like foundational basics. What's your movement? Are you moving? You know, like this is the, and we'll, we'll get to movement um, in, in a moment, but I often am counseling women. They'll say, yeah, I work out every day. And it's like, okay. And what do you do outside of that hour? Mm, yeah. Like, okay, well, you're not spinning. You're not doing your online class or your in-person class or wherever, but what, what else are you doing? Where are your little movement snacks? Where are your little five minute walks, little, you know, breaking up your meetings on zoom. You know, I always say like, I, sometimes I feel like I just talk to my computer all day long. You know, it's like I, I get on zoom and I talk and then I talk to my computer and then I do some notes. I look down and then I get on another and I talk to my computer again for another hour. Um, so I love what you're saying. And I think that it is, um, I think it's a harder topic mm -hmm. to broach in some way. I think someone would, at least it's been my clinical experience that someone would rather tell you that they've been physically abused mm -hmm. because there's, um, and not to say that, you know, mental abuse is not tangible, but there's like, there was a bruise, there was a broken arm. There was a, there was a physical manifestation of 
this, this stimulus, this, you know, physical abuse being the, uh, being the stimulus, whereas mental abuse, it's, it's, it's very gray. And I think a lot of us don't have the appropriate training, you know, just call a spade a spade. And I think it's, I think a patient would rather tell you that they've been hit rather than, you know, they had a, they had a mother that they didn't really connect to for, it's a much harder connection to make with the physical, because we all, you know, living in, you know, more, I'll call it Western and modern, um, uh, society, we can, um, it's hard for us to define trauma. Like we we've said, we've heard like big T, little T, you know, but there's such a broad spectrum in terms of what constitutes our response to an intervention. Um, so I, I think it's, it's trickier, but I think you're onto something. I think that you're, you're on the right path. I think what we have to do is just get better at screening, you know, and asking better questions and helping the patient also realize, because sometimes a patient, you know, there's been patients I've had and I'm like, there, there's some, there's some stuff going on here, but they are absolutely not willing to see it. They do not want to go there with me. And it's like, I have to respect those boundaries as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about when the person is ready too. we can't force people down a path that they're not ready to walk. And so Correct. it really is on that, the, the person or the patient's timeline. Um, and so I think, you know, I love reflecting back to the patient, like, this is your story. This is when your symptoms developed. And, and this is what I think is contributing to it. You know, what do you think about that? And then we go from there to see where they're at and what they're, what they want to do. Um, but some people like, for me, for, for my story, I went through the medical system for years. Nobody asked me about anxiety. Nobody told me that my anxiety could be contributing to IBS. And it's just mind blowing to me. Like, of course it is. Like I was holding, holding, like just like the idea of holding, I was constipated. I was holding, I had migraines, I was tense, you know? And so we need to have the conversation with, um, around mental health to destigmatize it, to start saying like, this is part of all of our healing journeys at some level. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's, it's true. There, there's some people that aren't ready to, to walk that path and that's okay. That's totally okay. If you see somebody or if it's you that's had SIBO over and over again, it's a recurrent condition. You're not getting to the root of it. You can keep treating it with rounds of Zyfaxin or berberine or oregano or prokinetics or whatever you want. If you don't get to that root cause and the root cause is that you are chronically stressed, it'll keep coming back. I promise. Double pinky promise. Double pinky let, let's talk a little bit about, um, how one, so let's, let's assume that someone is listening to you right now and they're saying, okay, yeah, yeah. There's stuff in my, in my history. What are, and I, and I, and I'll pre preframe this by saying, I love baby steps. I think that when I used to make this mistake, all the time as a practitioner, I'm like, I have all the tools and I'm going to bring this and that, and, you know, they're so overwhelmed. We don't get the results we need. So I have really come to appreciate small wins, putting that person in momentum. They feel like they're winning. And then when they're in that state of expansion, they're saying, okay, I'm ready for the next piece. Now, what are some small ways that we can begin to get our patients in momentum to activate 
their parasympathetics, to look at their mental health? What are some small little steps that someone might look to, to help to begin improving um, their mental health, maybe looking at uh, trauma. And then I would say globally, a parasympathetic, like getting into parasympathetics. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I look at the brainstem and you know more about this than I do with your background, but um, the brainstem has control over the body, right? And that's also where the parasympathetic, sympathetic are coming out of. And so when I look at what we were talking about in terms of trauma, whether it's chronic stress or an actual trauma, we want to start actually at the level of the body. So it may not necessarily be talk therapy for everybody. It may be that we have to help you get into that parasympathetic by getting your body into it. So the first thing that I recommend is going to be a daily practice. And this isn't to, you know, put you in the biohacking community. It's really to calm down that nervous system. And that's because if we're doing a daily morning ritual or routine, that means there's no tiger in the room. If there's a tiger in the room, all routine goes out the window and we run, right? And so as soon as our body and our brain sees a routine happening, it already tells us that we're safe. It's a really subtle signal to the body that we are safe and we can do our normal functions of reproduction and digestion. And so I have people make up their own daily practice. I always say start with a full eight ounce glass of water because that's going to help trigger the gastrocolonic reflux to have a bowel movement in the morning. And so starting with a full glass of water with some lemon, ideally room temperature, and then going into either breath work or meditation. Um, there's gut directed hypnotherapy. There's an app that just called, came out called Nerva. And so with people with IBS, that's my suggestion for your mindfulness right there is doing gut directed hypnotherapy, which is imagery and mindfulness practices to get back that gut brain connection. Um, and, and then, you know, doing some movement is the other really important one. And movement is there not because we want to burn calories and keep you in shape. Movement is there to get you into your body, which helps with that stress response. And so we're all up here a lot of the time, right? Like we're thinking, we're solving, you know, we're trying to fix, um, or we're scanning, <laughs> And so we want to get back into our bodies, which is why yoga has been studied to help with depression, anxiety, mental health in general, um, but anything that gets you back into your body. So if you love walking, walking is one of my favorite hands down for the nervous system and for the gut. And so two reasons, it helps to activate that vagus nerve, your parasympathetic system when you're walking casually looking around at trees, flowers, and incorporating mindfulness into that. The other thing is that with walking, your foot hits the ground and there's gravity. So there's impact. And so walking can actually stimulate movement of the GI tract to simulate a full bowel movement. Um, so it's no coincidence that if you go for a run or a walk that you may want to go to the bathroom afterwards. So I love, love, love walking there. And that can be, that can be the first thing that you do 10,000 steps every day. Like number one, super simple baby step. I love walking after a meal. It's one of the first things, like when we talk about little baby things, it's like, you just need to walk for 10 or 20 minutes after every meal. Yeah. Can you do that? Yes. And I always feel better when I walk at a small meal, big, you know, I always feel better. And I actually find that some of my best ideas Cause I'm not, like you said, I'm not scanning. I'm not thinking about the next thing. It's like, I'm just smelling the trees and I hear the birds chirping. And that's when I get 
creative downloads. Like my partner, Giovanni, who I know, you know, he loves the shower. It's, it's like a, you know, baptism for him, like every morning. I love to walk. Walking is where I get some of my downloads and I love, um, uh, in, in terms of even just helping with digestion. I mean, of course it makes you feel better. Um, one of the things that I will often, um, counsel patients to do as well as a really small little step is, um, put your fork down in between meals, chew, right? This is the other thing too. Like we all sort of, and I would love for you to touch a little bit on the cephalic phase of digestion, because this is the only time that you have to actually mechanically break down your food. And so how many of us were just like, you know, fork stays and we're just like wolfing it in, you know, we're getting our, getting our little, maybe our bicep work out there, but it's, it's, we're just like throwing the food back and you know, I, I often sort of like some guidance, like it should, you know, 10, you know, 10, maybe to 15 shoes on each side, just so it's, it's, there's no hard pieces left. Like it's all kind of mushy. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, the cephalic phase of digestion. Let's talk a little bit about the value. If you see value uh, in, I'd like to tell people, put your fork down while you're chewing and then you have to pick it back up to get the next bite. Yeah, no, I love that. That's such an easy place to start too. But the cephalic phase of digestion is called cephalic because it means head. Um, So it's everything that happens in the head, which is looking at the food, smelling the food, even hearing the food crunch or cut or anything like that. But this is the phase of digestion that happens before the food even enters your mouth. And we usually think about this as like, oh yeah, whatever. But 30% of your stomach acid and about 20% of your pancreatic enzymes are being produced during this cephalic phase, which is huge. That's like a lot of the digestive process that's happening before you even put the food into your mouth. And so just like you say, put the fork down. My other cue for people is don't start eating until you're salivating. And so if you're not salivating yet, then you haven't spent enough time with your food ahead of time, just kind of dropping in, getting into that parasympathetic, prepping your body. Um, And and this makes sense, too. So humans have been around for, what, 200,000 years. Fast food has been around for 100, if that, not even. Yeah, not if, not even. Um, and then you had like technology, which we distract ourselves from our food with cell phones came out in the eighties, you know, so for a majority, 99.9999% of human evolution, we were foraging, hunting, gathering our food, bringing it back, cutting it, chopping it, peeling it, cooking it, prepping. I mean, there was a lot of time spent with our food alone and we don't have, we don't spend that much time with our food anymore. It's like, okay, I go to air one, hot bar, done, eat, gone. And so a lot of this is just spending more time with your food, dropping in, looking at it, smelling it, really extending that cephalic phase or <laughs> the cephalic phase of digestion so that you are stimulating those digestive enzymes and stomach acid and you're salivating before you eat. There's a great research study that they look at people that either do things while they're eating. So they're either watching TV or they're working or they just are focusing on their food. And the people that do other things while they're eating on average weigh 18% more than those that just eat and focus on their food. Wow. 18%. Which is like, if you look at like a 150 pound person, it's about 27 extra pounds. Significant, very significant. Yes. 
very significant that I call that dining al desco. It's like when you're at the desk and you're just sort of, you know, or you're on your phone and you're sort of mindlessly, you don't actually have uh, when you, when you, when you're distracted, you're not paying attention to your stomach. And that's, you know, just another clinical little clinical pearl that I'll throw out is one of the things I'd like to tell patients, particularly who've said, I'm counting my calories. I'm weighing my food. I'm doing, I'm like, okay, I want you to eat until you're 80% full. Mm-hmm. And they're often like, what is that? I don't even, I don't understand. And it's like, well, that you have to stop the distraction. You have to just focus on what you're doing and you should be, if you're eating slow enough, you're also giving the satiety signals time to get to these appetite regulation centers so that you, you're able to say, okay, yeah, I'm starting to feel like 70, 80% full, like I'm good here, which for most people, you know, if I asked, you know, my Bettys that are listening here or that are live, you know, if I said, when was the last time that you stopped eating when you were 80% full? Probably very few of you, um, because it's not something that we think about. We, we sort of eat whatever has been put in front of whatever we've prepared. Um, so I think learning to listen to your body cues, I think is also really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. But um, this change alone, I have a gut health course and we talk about mindful eating, which is what we're talking about, just being mindful of the eating process and chewing your food. So you were mentioning the only mechanical digestion that ever happens is the chewing of your teeth. So after you chew your food, it's only chemical digestion from there on out. And so if you're not swallowing baby food consistency, that means that you're leaving it up to just chemicals pancreatic enzymes, stomach acid to digest the rest of your food. So when people tell me like, yeah, I've got like pieces of vegetables in my stool. I don't think that something's wrong with your body. I really, the first thing I go to is you're not chewing your food. It's that simple. Um, And so it, it should be unrecognizable even right after it leaves your mouth. Um, but I think it's, it's something that when I was saying the gut health course, people that just did this one thing, just the mindful eating, just really focused on just that, just chewing your food, being present, turning off distractions. I had a woman email me, which made the whole course worth it. I was like, I had IBS for 20 years and I feel I haven't had a single symptom since I started mindful eating. And it's going to affect more of us if, if you're not eating mindfully to an extreme, right? But I think most of us can, can really benefit from just slowing down with our food. So if you are someone, I will, I will hang myself out here to dry because every Friday, this is my treat for the kids because at Friday night, I've prepared five breakfasts, five lunches. I'm homeschooling right now as well. So five dinners. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to order. We're going to like, you choose, like it's usually burgers. You know, you choose the place. I order the burgers and you know, mama's just going to take Friday night off. But of course, in that they're not hearing me, you know, putter around the kitchen. They're not hearing the bubbling on the stove. They're not hearing me chop the vegetables. And I actually often get my kids to help participate Mm -hmm. in dinner because I've often found that when I just put, and I don't know if there's any research behind this, but whenever I just put food in front of them, they're like, ew, what's this? Uh, And, but if I have them like, oh, I'll add in the tomatoes and I'll add in the diced, you know, celery that you just, then they're like, oh, okay. I know this was the celery. And it's like now in the stew, it's like darker because of the whatever. So, um, they don't heat, they don't have that on Friday night. So how can we 
because they don't have all the cranial nerves. They don't have the eyes. They don't have the olfactory bulb. They don't have the, well, maybe they'll have the taste, but they don't have like the auditory cues. They don't hear the bubbling on the stove. What are some ways that, because I order Uber, there's Uber Eats in my house Friday nights. What, what can we do for, and maybe someone who orders more often than that, how can we help them um, initiate and maximize uh, the cephalic phase of digestion if they're not preparing at home? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we need to talk about because this will happen, right? In this modern day, these things will happen and it's okay. We need these things in order to maintain the pace that we're living life. But um, my recommendation is that you you sit with your food. And so if you're in a family setting, specifically gratitude is a great time or if you pray, if you're religious, but something that will slow down the process, anything really that will slow down the process, that's intentional and increases presence. So we don't want to slow down the process by turning on the TV and, and going elsewhere, but really to get present with what's happening. And so it's a great time to, you know, talk about gratitude. Like what are we grateful for in our day? Because we're going to naturally, if we're hungry, be looking at our food during that time. We're, we're animals. So we're not going to be looking elsewhere. We're going to be looking at our food and to intentionally take it in. And so to pause for a moment and say, you know, maybe we're grateful for this food, but you're looking at it, you're smelling it. Um, it's almost like you're having like a little foreplay with your food. You're giving it the time and space that it deserves and that your body really, really, really needs. And so you can, you can mock the cephalic phase by just slowing down, just like really slowing down. And then this is why eating at the table is so much more beneficial than in front of the TV is that ideally there's natural conversation that's happening too, which forces you to put your fork down finish chewing, talk for a period of time, and then get back to your food. That's really how we were designed to eat is, is through community and through this conversation. And so that naturally slows down the whole, whole process. But, you know, I think it's really just about that pause that we can take. There's a, um, a show, I believe it's on Netflix and, and there's many of them, but this is just one of my favorites is uh, Jamie Oliver and he goes to Italy and he goes all into all different regions of Italy looking at, and he's particularly going to the nonnas, which is uh, Italian for grandmother, going to get all these nonna recipes. And when he, in, in most places from South to Northern Italy, all of the meals take time. And I was, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this one episode where they're, I think they're in Tuscany and they have, you know, a really tough cut of meat, you know, because they, maybe they didn't have the money to have the more, you know, the Fiorentina or the super expensive beef, you know, um, cut of steak. So they would have like the brisket or the shoulder or whatever, but it sits in this stew, you know, just kind of bubbling away for like six hours, eight hours. And then she plates like the nonna plates this stew with, you know, whatever it was with pasta, whatever it was. And his face, it, when he took the, he, when he takes the bite, it's like his face melted. He's, and you could see the meat is just falling off. It's so tender. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think about, and that's part of the, re, one of the reasons why I actually love making stews. It's super easy when you're cooking for a family. It's like you sort of throw it in the slow cooker and it's kind of doing its thing, or if it's on the stovetop. 
but then you get that perfuming of the home, right? My kids will come down. They're like, oh, mommy's making like the, the chicken with the tomato sauce with the olives again, or mommy's making the, you know, whatever it is that I'm making because they can smell it and they can smell it. Like the whole house is marinated in this scent. And I, and I love what you're saying, because I think that that is something that is, um, that we're losing, you know, and this is part of like the whole, you know, not to lament on Jamie Oliver. I love him, but you know, he talks about this, you know, he went to speak to all these nonas because so many Italians are not cooking anymore. So he wanted to sort of make sure that these recipes were, you know, that he could um, crystallize them in some way so that they can continue to move forward because even Italians where we think they're, you know, they take so much pride in their food and it's just the best, even they are starting to fall away from some of these traditions where they're not, you know, they don't have the time to sit over a stove all day long. They're working They're, you know, it's, it's expensive to raise children, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, yeah. 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 And it made me think of one other thing too, that's a little hack that you can do is just because you're ordering takeout food doesn't mean you can't have the kids plate the food, like really put it on real yeah. plates. And like, that's just some extra time of like preparing, preparing the table, putting silverware down. Um, sometimes we'll just eat out of the actual container, but to make it more of a, a real experience. It's communal. Yes. Yeah. So you're not eating out of the styrofoam or the greasy paper that it came in. Yes, absolutely. Um, one more, one more topic I wanted to make sure that we get to, um, before we, uh, go to questions. So one of the nice things about recording this in HBHQ, my babies are going to ask you a couple of questions. I wanted to just talk about the interplay of the gut and the immune system. So we, you mentioned it briefly before when you said, listen, when we're sympathetic, like reproduction shuts down, immunity shuts down, digestion shuts down, and we favor blood flow and nervous innervation of the periphery. But the immune system, and again, kind of coming back to this whole, you know, the whole last year, like immune system or, you know, almost two years now, front and center with COVID-19, how, uh, or can you speak to the role that the gut has and its interplay with, and its role in the immune system? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, everybody's probably heard this from this past year, but about 70 to 80% of the immune system resides around in the gut. And so we talk about the gut associated lymphoid tissue is what we're talking about. Um, and that is going to be, we abbreviated GALT, um, but this is the adaptive immune system, which includes the antibody producing plasma cells. And so it's nice because we're all a little bit more fluent in immunology now, but we know that antibodies are those things that our immune system produces to neutralize invading pathogens, things like viruses, right? Um, and our GALT has more antibody producing plasma plasma cells than the number of plasma cells in your spleen, lymph nodes, and bone marrow combined. So this is a huge center of where our immune system resides and activates from um, and protects us against these pathogens that can come in, that usually will come in at some point in your life. Um, what's interesting is it's not just the, the GALT though, as we think that the microbiome is likely related to this immune system center too. And so sometimes how we study the microbiome is with mice that have no microbiome. That's one of the ways we can figure out like what's doing what. These are called germ-free mice, which means they have no germs. They have no microbiome in them. And what we see in the research is that in these mice that don't have a gut microbiome, they have underdeveloped spleens and nymph lymph nodes where the immune cells should also um, reside. They have fewer areas of these GALT 
Pyres patches. So they have fewer areas of focused immune cells around the gut. Um, they also just have decreased number of plasma cells that produce antibodies. They have lower numbers of immunoglobulins. So again, IgA, IgG, those antibodies that help neutralize things. And they also have abnormal cytokine production. And so we talked about that a little bit with COVID in the beginning, especially, but cytokines are those um, immune chemical inflammatory molecules that signal things within the body, whether it's inflammation or anti-inflammation, um, but they're really, really important for messengers sending things, signals, but also um, amounting an immune response and inflammatory process. And so it really looks like, yeah, it's the GALT that's there and we have so many immune cells around the gut, but also the gut microbiome is playing a huge role in all the things that I just mentioned too. Wonderful. And I often, you know, it's, we often think, oh, we're, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're human. We're, you know, this is our species. And I, I would off, I would counter that we are just sacks for them. <laughs> we are just carrying mechanisms for this microbiome. I mean, I think of our cells out, are outnumbered in 20, 10 to one, 20 to one, something like that, uh, in terms of human cells to, uh, to the amount of, um, uh, or I should say genetic human material versus the genetic information that we, uh, that we have from our microbiome. Yeah, we're 99% bacterial if we look at it from a DNA perspective. So we have about 20 million genes that come from microbes, from bacteria, and we have 20,000 human genes. So we are much more bacteria than we are human if we're looking at this from a, a genes perspective, genetics. Dr. Party, this has been such an incredible conversation. Of course, I haven't seen you in person in a while. So this has just been a delight for me to see you and to have this time with you. Um, if people want to find more about your gut course, or if they want to, in, you know, they have more questions for, we're going to take some questions from the audience, but just for my, for my podcast uh, listeners now, if they want to find out more about you, tell us where we can find you. Tell us about your gut course, tell, and tell us about modern med, your, um, your clinic as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I uh, have a telemedicine practice that's also now in person in Los Angeles um, called Modern Med. Our website is modrnmed.com and there's the ability to schedule with a modern med doctor. We all specialize in integrative gastro gut health. Um, and, and then also my Instagram is dr.maryparty. I put out a lot of content about the gut microbiome, SIBO, IBS, and mental health um, through that channel as well. The gut health course that I did, we can send over the link for you guys. There's a trial period that you can look at some stuff for free. Um, but we go through IBS, inflammatory bowel disease. We talk about fecal transplants. We talk about helminthic therapy, which is worm therapy that we're using now in, in gut conditions. Um, we talk about, we do a deep dive into the microbiome, like everything gut bugs. And, and so that course is, is hosted through one commune. And so we can throw over the link to you guys for that as well. Beautiful. All right. I'm going to stop the recording now and we will take questions from our Hello Betty audience. Awesome. All right. I hope that you really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Mary Pardee. And in 
my departing statements from you, I wanted to share a review that came in from the United States from Spirit Turtle 7. Um, my spirit animal, in case that's what you named yours after, is uh, a panther. And uh, Spirit Turtle 7 writes, Magical Authenticity. I just love listening and appreciate the work that goes into this podcast. Everything makes great sense. And Dr. Stephanie crosses her T's and dots her I's perfectly. Her voice is also nice to listen to. She sounds like Gwyneth Paltrow. Keep up the awesome knowledge that you share with us. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave this review. Of course, any uh, time you compare me to GP, I takes it. So thank you very much. Really appreciate that and really appreciate the value um, that you're enjoying the podcast. It is uh, a labor of love, absolutely. And glad that it is landing with you in the way that I had intended. And if you are someone who is looking to, uh, if you want to show some love for the pod, please feel free to leave a review to leave a five-star rating on iTunes or a review. I see them all and uh, just want to say love and appreciate all of you. Thank you so, so much. So until next time, I bid you adieu. We will talk very soon. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.